In the U.S., about 44% of the population has had at least one dose of the COVID-19 vaccine. In India, it's a totally different story. About 9% of their population has had one dose, and the situation is becoming worse by the day. And unfortunately, the news reports are not lying. Um, and I think that's the scary part. Um, it, it, it's like a war, except everyone who's dying are innocent civilians. The healthcare system is overwhelmed as the country experiences the world's worst outbreak, with about 300,000 new cases of COVID-19 each day. Our team members themselves are sick um, and you know unable to kind of get get a get a hospital bed, get oxygen. They're they're scrambling. So this is hitting middle class, and I think that's like something I would like to highlight. My guests this week are Devil Sangavi and Sneha Sheth. They both run nonprofits on the front lines of the COVID-19 battle in India. I wanted to talk with them about what it's really like there and how people listening can help. The president met with congressional leaders. Doctors will start implanting the devices. And he heard that warning from the Coast Guard tonight. For now, we're live in Orlando. For now, we're live in Dallas. We're live in Boston tonight. Caitlin McCulley, 7 News 19. I'm Caitlin McCulley. I left my job as a TV news reporter in a pandemic to try to find a better way to share stories that matter. No BS. Thanks for listening to Outlet Podcast. You can download new episodes each week. So I'm Sneha. I run Dost Education. And at Dost, we support low-income parents in India to get their kids school ready. And we do this through primarily digital programming. Um, daily one-minute phone calls are our flagship product. My name is Thevel Sangvi. I work with an organization called Dasra. And we're sort of a nonprofit for other nonprofits. And so for the last 22 years in India, we've been supporting lit, uh, many community locally based organizations across the country. And so when COVID hit, we thought it was a great way to um, just leverage the, the trusting relationships we have across the country and help those groups uh, with, with a little bit of fundraising and, and really for them to meet the needs of their community. Okay, great. So obviously, we've uh, in the US all been watching what's been going on in India, but we can only see what we're seeing on the news reports, we're seeing videos, we're seeing, you know, um, information on social media. So if you could just give us a picture from your perspective, Dave, I'll, what is it like right now? I mean, unfortunately, the news reports are not lying. Um, and I think that's the scary part. Um, it, it, it's like a war, except everyone who's dying are innocent civilians. Um, and it's, it is just horribly tragic. Um, we've had, uh, last week alone, three of our board members or colleagues lost their parents. Uh, um, it's just, it is another one of my colleagues lost four family members in the last, uh, you know, 10 days. And so it is just really, really bad. And, and, and just the virus is spreading rapidly. Uh, the healthcare systems have buckled completely. Um, and, and what we're seeing in, in, for example, the news reports in a city like Delhi, which is our capital, mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, the same is happening in rural India right now across many towns and villages, and no one is even covering that. Um, and, and it seems that other cities like Bangalore, which is sort of our Silicon Valley, is also sort of on a peak right now. And so it, it just seems like this wave, um, you know, just like the U.S. or in other countries, it's, it's really going to be passing from city to city. And with only 2.2% of our uh, population fully vaccinated, um, we don't necessarily see an end in sight like we see in the US or the UK or other countries that have been able to vaccinate um, you know, in a short amount of time. And how does this compare to the first wave in India? This is much worse, right? 
significantly. I mean, I think the first wave was really led by a lockdown. Uh, and, and so the government had probably one of the most, the strictest lockdowns in the world, in fact. And that happened sort of last week of March 2020, where um, unfortunately, many people were sort of left fending for themselves, walking hundreds, if not thousand kilometers home. Uh, because many uh, migrant and informal workers, uh, which constitute 92% of our population, um, uh, working population, they they actually sleep in the factories that they work in. And so a lockdown meant they also were just stranded and, and all trains, planes, buses, everything was shut down. Wow. And, and so while that was, um, I guess, a human tragedy that definitely occurred and, and so many people were just left stranded, the health risks of or, or, or spread of COVID was nowhere compared to what we're seeing, you know, in the last few weeks and months. And is lockdown, is that something that's going to happen again? I know there's been some back and forth in, in the leadership uh, trying to decide whether or not they're going to do that. And so there's definitely, um, you know, aspects of lockdown that have occurred across the country. And so they've decentralized this decision. And so many, again, states are making their own decisions. But for example, in the city I live in, in Mumbai, uh, for the last four weeks, we've had a curfew. So at post 7 p.m., no one's able to go out. Only 10% of individuals are even attend are able to attend an office and that too, if they're essential. Trains have been shut for about a month, month and a half. Uh, no restaurants or areas are, are open for public gatherings across the city. And so while they're not calling it an official lockdown, it's definitely, I would say, in, in the terminology that other countries have seen a lockdown, it's very much that. Um, I, I think the issue, though, is that, uh, again, where um, uh, the lockdown in itself, if, if they do you know, stop, for example, transportation for people to go back to their villages mm -hmm. uh, like they did last time, I think the risk is just far greater because then you'll have just you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people trying to get home uh, in, in a not so efficient or effective manner. And so the death that will be caused by that as well as the virus spread is just too much. And so I, I would say most major cities across the country are definitely in some sort of lockdown, but they haven't actually shut off everything yet because if they do, again, the risk seems to be quite quite high and maybe even higher than what we're seeing right now, which is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. And so Sneha, you are, you're based in San Francisco, is that right? That's right. So you're running Dose Education. Um, and you've been dealing with mobile learning apps to help help families and kids. How has that been, how have you been able to adapt what you're doing to this crisis? Yeah, well, I'll just take a moment and say, you know, last year, the whole team is in Delhi. And last year when COVID hit, 2020 was different. You know, we had the ability as a team to respond. We could call up all the 50,000 families that we worked with. We did surveys and we were able to understand what these families were going through. And at that time, it was things like, you know, our kids are home from school. What do we do? How do we continue learning? Mm -hmm. um, it was other, you know, serious issues like now everyone's working at home or not able to go out for work. So domestic violence was on the rise. And we really saw that um, come up a lot in the families we spoke to. This year, you know, it's, it's vastly different. So our team members themselves are sick um, and, you know, unable to kind of get get a get a hospital bed get oxygen they're they're scrambling so this is hitting middle class and i think that's like something i would like to highlight okay um and the second thing the the what the way we've seen this affect families this time around is now you have kids who have not been in school for over two years 
um, by the time we get out of this. And so that these are some of the, I think the aftermath, right? You know, after this, the crisis subsides, the, the health crisis subsides, we're going to see families whose kids haven't been in school for two years. We're going to see families where the stress levels are going to become toxic for the family to kind of the weight that's going to be on their children, their young children, especially. Um, and we're going to see other issues around livelihoods and job loss. So at those, we're thinking about how do we continue to support those families and respond to these needs that are, have, you know, have really gone beyond education and um, are going to, you know, you can't think about education when your family's dying or your family's sick. So we're, you know, you've got to, we've got to stay relevant and respond to some of these immediate needs in the, in the medium term. So how big is your team? We've got a team of 10, uh, like full-time staff and about 20 part-time staff. And And I would say 40% of them are, were affected by the current crisis. Yeah. Wow. Are most of them based in India too, or are you? Yeah, they're all based in Delhi. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay. Um, how has it been like for you? I can't imagine, um, just, I mean, just the contrast in the U S um, people are starting to plan vacations and get vaccinated and all of this. And then meanwhile, this whole different situation in in India, you know, it's heartbreaking. It feels like it just feels like whiplash. It feels like, um, you know, it is really hard and we're trying to do everything we can just to support our team first, take care of them. Um, and then after that, figure out how we can respond to this and support the thousands of families that that are going to be going through this for a while. So for me personally, yes, it, it's definitely, um, you know, I'm, I'm lucky I'm sitting here talking to you from San Francisco. Um, it's, it's the, you know, where we're thinking about are the families that are going through this right now. Yeah. And so the hospital situation, is it better in some areas, worse in some areas, Dival? Like, I'm wondering if yes. it's, if it varies from state to state. No, it does. It does. Yeah. And just to give everyone a sense, where recorded cases are at uh, 400,000 cases a day down. Um, and we have about, uh, you know, 4,000 people dying daily. Um, and, and so um, about four weeks ago or five weeks ago, I guess it was uh, pretty bad in the city that I live in, in Mumbai. Okay. Um, and, uh, and then uh, things seem to be getting better here. Um, that being said, even the availability of tests uh, have gone down significantly. Um, and so um, while the statistics look okay in the city we live in, the state itself has, has actually more deaths now than they did a, a few weeks ago. And the testing itself, um, I know just from a personal experience, we're trying to get tests done and they're just, they're, they're not as available anymore. And so uh, that, that all being said, the Mumbai is definitely better right now. Um, Delhi is, is definitely bad, uh, right. really, really bad, and, and, and the surrounding areas as well. So like I was talking about the workers, um, and, and I say this just because as we all know, you know, COVID spreads with people traveling. And so um, while in cities like Mumbai, which are slightly getting better now, uh, the surrounding cities um, and the state as a whole is doing worse because so many people, rightfully so, uh, had to flee. Uh, and they had to flee again, and and this is, I'm sure, the same with with many of the homes that uh, Sneha works with, or households in Delhi, where most of the individuals, um, so about 50% of our urban population live in slums, and each of them will have a maximum eight feet by eight feet or ten foot by ten foot room, which is uh, the kitchen, the bedroom, everything, 
And, and so when you have five to seven family members living in such a small space, isolation is not possible. And many right. of the slums still don't have access to running water or toilets even. And so they're sharing, 300 people are sharing a community toilet. And so social distancing, hand washing, these are all privileges. Right. Um, and, and so again, many of these individuals have gone back to their homes, but then in doing so, given again how how quick this particular strain seems to be spreading and how deadly it is, they're going back home. Uh, they do, are afraid to be tested in rural India now because in rural India, uh, there's not COVID centers next to their village. And, and just like the US or anywhere else, uh, COVID centers mean no one is allowed in or out unless you have COVID. And so a family member, if they get tested and they're positive, they then will have to go 50, many times even 100 kilometers away to be in a closed space without any loved ones. And well, unfortunately, we've seen now, you know, 4,000 a day, they will die alone. And so many families across rural India are so afraid of even getting tested now that they don't want it because they, they want to at least be with their loved ones in this time of need and not send them to a place that they also have concerns with. I mean, they're not um, you know, they haven't necessarily been users of modern healthcare systems. They have doubts. Um, they also feel like, you know, they'd rather be with those, you know, with their loved ones and not send a grandparent somewhere where there's just a big black hole right now, especially when they are seeing the same thing that you all are seeing where, you know, those centers may not even be well equipped with doctors, with oxygen or anything. And so, so you're seeing sort of the spread now, um, you know, trickling into rural India. You're seeing it trickling into different towns now. Um, and it's just heart-wrenching to, to, to hear the stories that we're hearing um, across the board. So likely, based on what you're saying, likely these numbers are highly underreported. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Just because it's, I mean, there's just so many people, like I said, the test itself are not available. Right. And even if they were, there's so many people who just don't want to get tested uh, because of this fear. Well, you can't you can blame people for that. I mean, if in any situation, in a good non-pandemic situation, you want to be near your family members when they go in a hospital. You're, you know, I mean, the data even shows that the outcomes are better when you have a family member there with you, like monitoring what the medical treatment is. It makes sense. And so, again, we've been working in the country now for 22 years with mm -hmm. nonprofits across the board. Uh, so they can be education, they can be youth leadership, they can be farmer-based, they can be working with artisans, they can work on mental health. And so we've worked with uh, groups ac across the country in, in, in all of these interventions. And like Sneha was just saying, the spread of this virus um, is, you know, holds no bounds. It doesn't matter uh, whether you're a health NGO or, or, or an education NGO or, yeah. or anything else. I, I think what we do have with these local partners is, though, that they have a strong connection in the communities that they serve. And so while their intervention, many of them may not be health, probably about 20% are health and 80% are non-health. Um, they, they have the closest relationship with the community. Mm -hmm. And so they're able to understand, for example, core morbidities and get maybe a doctor in to do sort of testing um, now and saying who has a heart disease, who has diabetes, who has uh, any other conditions. And so we can just pinpoint this community. So when the virus spreads in our community, we know these are the high risk individuals that we need to get to some sort of care quicker. 
mm-hmm. or many of them are also trying to, you know, right now at least help the hospital in 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 supplying whether it's uh, oxygen concentrators and so through funds we're raising, oxygen cylinders, um, even food and ration kits. In fact, one of the groups that we were speaking to, they said last year um, uh, they were actually giving cash transfers to individuals because they realize these families are so desperate for for any sort of support and they just didn't have livelihoods for so many months. And and so this year when we were speaking to them, in fact, just two days ago, this one particular group, they said the community doesn't want cash transfers but wants food packets because they're afraid of stepping out of their house. So they said, even if you give us the cash transfer, we will get sick the second we step out. So please give us these food packets on our door. And so I I think the benefit of local community organizations is they know these groups so well before the disaster that the, the, the community trusts them. And, and they're able to provide aid, able to speak about vaccine hesitancy. They're able to, you know, identify and get them to the right sources, whether they're other organizations, whether it's government, whether it's private hospitals. But they're they're, they're sort of able to, I guess, play a leadership role in, in, in everything, uh, even though they themselves may not be delivering the health solution. I just wanted to add that I think in most of these cases, these NGOs are working within the local system, within the government system already. And so, you know, it's not like these other organizations are coming in from somewhere else. As they will mention, they're they're really locally integrated. They're already working on government priorities. And now they're just saying, how do we use our existing infrastructure and our our skills to kind of deliver on things that are happening now? And one of the big things we're seeing is around misinformation on both COVID safety and also the vaccine. And so some of the organizations that we're trying to partner with on getting using our digital infrastructure to get out better information and and kind of bust some of the myths, what they're seeing is just a really strong lack of information on things like how do you do home isolation if if possible? Of course, it's a privilege to do that. Um, How do you think about, you know, caregiver support if you know that someone's going to be passing away with COVID but they want to stay at home? So the, I think this is like the tactical stuff where, you know, these these organizations know exactly what their community needs and they're able to kind of understand where where are the gaps in knowledge, where how can we use what we already do in healthcare education? You know, there are other organizations as well and kind of come to the table to solve the crisis right now. And when you say your digital infrastructure, what do you mean? Is it a, is it a mobile app? Yeah, so we actually don't have an app because most of the families we work with don't have smartphones, um, okay. or if they do, they 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 aren't accessible to the mother or the person who needs to use the who needs to access the information. Okay. So our entire dig- like when I say digital product, it's entirely uh, feature phone based. It's a one minute daily. Uh, think of it as like a podcast that gets sent through a phone call. So anyone who has access to a feature phone, which is, you know, 70 to 80 percent of our um, target population can access this information. And it's kind of like you can send anything from a PSA to a nudge on something that they need to do locally. Um, so how do we use some of these types of like really low cost, easy technologies to support families to get relevant information um, and know, you know, even as they will mention there, some of them have to travel from city to where they're going. How do they keep up to speed on like what's happening and how they can stay safe? Got it. With vaccinations, um, we work with a lot of new and young moms. So moms who have kids in the birth to six age range. And there's a lot of um, misinformation we're already seeing right now on is the vaccine um, bad for lactating mothers, mm-hmm. which is not true. And so how do we get those? In fact, it's better. It's it's great for those moms to get a vaccine. So 
Um, that's just one example. Um, another example is just around um, safety around masking, right? So as soon as the lockdown ended and things were seeming to go back to normal, um, like knowing when and how to wear a mask was kind of not something that was known widely. And so you had some uh, one group of people who knew about it were wearing it and another group who didn't. So um, those are just some examples, but it's really across the board. There's not, you know, looking for, people are looking for a credible source of information that makes it really simple and easy to understand. And that's one of the roles that we're trying to play, but it, not just us. I think all, all the NGOs that are at the front lines are working on. That's so important in the U.S. and other parts of the world, too. We all have these same questions, exactly. you know. Yeah. Um, so it's interesting to see how you're able to use that. How big is your network? Yeah, so we are, we had our own network of 50,000 families when we were working on this pre-COVID. And then after COVID, we've been partnering with UNICEF India. So they have a network of, you know, hundreds of thousands of families across five different states that we're now working with. So our goal by the end of the next year would be to reach about... 200,000 families and really expand the network. Yeah. And as you were mentioning, education kind of takes a backseat. Um, yeah. well, well, I guess this is education of a different kind. Yeah. <laughs> of more, True. more, more, um, immediate kind. So for yeah. people, for people watching, um, in the U S what's going on for people listening to this podcast, what is the biggest thing that you think we need to know and, and, and how can people help if, if they want to help? I mean, I, I think, um, a couple of things. I guess number one is um, there, uh, I know there has been and even now a, a significant need for oxygen mm -hmm. and there's no question about that. I, I think uh, just given though the, uh, just the lack of global supply of oxygen concentrators which currently exist, um, it will take some time. Uh, and when I say some time, probably between mid to late June, if any new oxygen concentrator is being purchased right now and the backlog is significant. And the only reason I bring that up is because by that time, there seems to be at least uh, oxygen plants being built, other sort of initiatives. And, and I think while oxygen is one part of the story, it's not the only part of the story. Mm -hmm. and, and so I guess from a Dusser perspective, and we did support uh, hundreds of oxygen concentrators a few weeks ago, I think for us, it's how do you then support these local organizations uh, because even the oxygen concentrator, to be honest with you, I mean, we've never used this many in the country. Mm -hmm. And so technicians need to be brought on. Um, the concentrator itself will need uh, cannulas or pipes from the concentrator and will need hundreds, if not thousands of pipes. Um, there, there's also regulators that need to be put on these concentrators. And so I, I guess it's it's uh, just like we've seen in the U.S. or anywhere else in the world. I think funding local organizations to figure out what their needs are today, because even in a country like India, the needs of Mumbai are very different than the needs of Delhi, which are very different than the needs of Bangalore, which are very you know different than the needs of Kolkata. Mm -hmm. And and so I think our approach has been as Dasra at least let's let's you know let's actually look at and right now we've we, we've been trying to raise money for 50 organizations we're now adding another 50 to the lot and saying maximum to any organization will give a hundred thousand dollars to you but let's actually spread this out in a manner because today and, and again we've seen this everywhere else if your community is safe that doesn't mean your community is going to be safe three months from now 
<laughs> and, and so we want to give that flexibility to these organizations who know their community the best, many times even better than the government does, uh, to really then use this capital for the next four, three, four, five, six months even, to then use it whenever their needs arise, they have access to this, that they can then spend it. And, and, and so I think that's one of the big things we're trying to sort of I guess really push for is, is is moving away from sort of a centralized decision-making large international nonprofit organization. And there's nothing wrong with these groups, but they typically have a strategy that's maybe determined in the US, like New York for, for all of the world or all right. of India. Right. And, and so I guess our goal is that how do we then showcase those that don't necessarily have an office in America are not able to you know, uh, tweet, uh, are not able to uh, uh, sort of uh, raise money from people in America, but we've done all the diligence, we've done the vetting, we have a GuideStar India here, just like a GuideStar US, which mm -hmm. does all the financial legal compliance checks. So we've done all of that hard work and many of them we've worked with for 5, 10, 15 years so we can trust the management, the board, the communities, but how do you support some of those? And again, it doesn't have to just be through us. There's lots of different groups, but I think that's really that last mile funding, I think in most disasters, uh, don't actually trickle down, unfortunately. Uh -huh. and, yeah. and when it does, it just takes a lot of time. Um, and, and, and again, it's a New York-based solution, not, not a, you know, a, a local Mumbai South decision and that's what we need right now so i think that's what we're trying to do and and, and then stan maybe you can even talk about your website because i know you've been able to raise money to, for a matching grant and stuff that, that would be fantastic yeah yeah sure so i'll just echo like i think the main thing you we can do sitting here in the u.s as someone who's in that situation right is like empower local leadership and empower local organizations to do the work fast yeah. Um, and so that's why, you know, I sit in SF because there's a tech component to what we do and that's there's an enabling role here. But really, the, the decisions need to be made on the ground. And when you work with someone like Dasra, who who works with all these, I think it'll sounds like 100 NGOs at the end of the day, they're going to they're going to be vetted. You know, so I think that's like the first thing is find vetted organizations like through Dasra and, and support those local organizations. Um, and one way to do that in, at those, because we know that the need of the hour is not necessarily education, but more life-saving um, emergency work, we've done a Facebook campaign that has a matching donor um, of up to $25,000. And so that's just one way for like individuals to support. Um, and, and that's you can find that at those education's Facebook page. And if you donate there, there's $25,000 of a match grant from one of, you know, an amazing woman who lives out here in San Francisco, who has strong ties to India and, you know, had a wonderful career at Google. And she's, she's really trying just like all of us, right, to find a way to support the crisis right now and, and get us out of it. Yeah, well, it sounds like what you're saying is that these local organizations, because they're hyper local, they know the needs the best, they can react the quickest. And just yeah. like your example of, you know, people not necessarily wanting cash transfers, but wanting food packets, you know, that's so important to be able to, to deliver the need that that's actually there. Yeah. I just think like, it's so the parallels between what we've gone through here in the U S and there are, are there. And I think this is one of the few times that we can really empathize with not necessarily how bad it is, but we can understand that what people are going through in their homes, right? Like if you just think of your family, you, we went through the fears, we went through losing loved ones, we went through um, education challenges, kids at home, no childcare. And I think if you think about the, these families are going through the exact same thing, but at this magnified level, 
um, without any healthcare infrastructure that can meet the demand of what's happening. I think that can really put you in the shoes of what's happening and hopefully that gets people to want to help and support.